0: Welcome to the Oil & Gas Global Network's Legal and Risk Management Podcast with Sarah Stogner, where each weekly episode touches on legal and risk management issues impacting the energy sector. Visit our website at www.oilandgaslegalrisk.com for more information on today's episode,
1: past episodes, and upcoming OGGN events.
0: Good afternoon, this is Sarah with the Oil and Gas Global Network's Legal and Risk Management Podcast, sponsored by ThoughtTrace, developers of Alley, an artificial intelligence platform that reads and understands energy agreements and contracts to quickly find critical data. Make sure you visit thoughttrace.com slash podcast drawing to sign up and enter into our weekly drawing for this amazing portable power bank that works better than the fancy one that I bought at Sam's Club months ago. So you got to go check it out.
1: Well, that's good. Maybe we can make sure that we're all powered up and ready to go. Yeah,
0: right. So I've got Alex with me today. And Alex has been gracious enough to sit here and chat with me on insurance and legal issues. And we were just saying, you know, what kind of content that we want to bring people right and who our audience is. And, And I think my goal is to really bring an understanding to people that aren't lawyers or risk managers on why we care about this stuff, right? And why it matters.
1: And I think that's really the the big ticket there is I'm sure that the lawyers in the world understand a lot of the content that we're about to walk through and speak about. But before I started looking into these types of aspects, I was a field engineer and had no clue why we were choosing one versus another. And even in research and development or any of the other positions that I've held in the past within uh, the company it's been really interesting to see the different business decisions based upon the legal risk or the the risk in general right. that we have within the company
0: yeah so today i want to talk about different types of insurance insurance is everybody asleep <laughs> <laughs> right okay so big picture let's put it into the everyday context that i think everyone's familiar with right so For example, your homeowner's insurance, right? It has two different aspects to it. It's got what's called a first party and a third party. And first party is you own a home. If there's a hailstorm and it comes through and, and damages your roof or busts out windows, your homeowners would pay for your first party property damage. It also has an element of third party, okay? So if someone comes into your house, drinks too much wine slips and falls and busts themselves up on your floors it provides some coverage for third party and so that's the difference between first party and third party insurance
1: looks like i need to start going to more parties at sarah's house
0: (laughs) you know i am from louisiana we're really good at throwing parties so from a business perspective right you own a business or you work for a business What types of insurance are available? So let's just kind of talk big picture about the types of insurance that are available and prevalent in the energy industry. So a general liability policy, or what may be called a CGL, is a third, it provides mostly third-party coverage, okay? So the purpose is you own a business and someone is hurt because of your operations that's a third party, so not one of your employees, and they get hurt big picture or there's property damage from your operations that's an accident. That's the intention of general liability, but there's lots of exclusions in general liability policies. Okay. So I think the easier way is to say, okay, that's kind of big picture, but that doesn't mean that it covers all of your operations. And in fact, we were talking earlier, we had lunch and we were talking about, I was just reading a case for a company that was, a consultant that was hired to count and determine how many joints of pipe that they needed to put into the hole for casing. Yep. Okay.
1: Happens every day.
0: Right. Happens every day. And you were telling me a story about counting.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I used to be a mudlogger offshore in the Gulf of Mexico, and we were typically the third or the fourth party that would be monitoring casing or pipe or whatever was going to go into the hole to make sure that we knew at what depth we were at.
0: Right. Or how many pieces needed to come back out.
1: Yep. Right. Sounds simple, right? I'm sure that a lot of people have done this in their days in the oil and gas industry. However, How often do all four of the counts come back that they're actually all the same? Right. And I think that's really where it gets interesting, especially if you don't have a good working relationship with everyone. But again, what happens if something goes wrong?
0: Right. So in this case that I was reading, what happened was somebody lost track of counting. And so they actually completed the well 500 feet above the producing zone and realized it after they'd already cemented.
1: (laughs) Hundreds and hundreds of feet. Thousands of feet
0: of pipe into place, right? And then they go, oopsies. And understandably, the operator of the well was unhappy and sued the consultant and said, You didn't do your job right. And the consultant had a general liability policy. And so the consultant got sued. And the general liability company – general liability policy insurers came in and defended the consultant in that underlying litigation. But then the insurance company sued its own policyholder, which happens frequently, saying, we don't have a duty to indemnify you for these allegations. So – We are providing for your defense, but we really don't have an obligation to defend you or indemnify you. So while that underlying case is going on, we're going to file what's called a declaratory judgment action against you and get a court to rule that there's no duty for us to defend or indemnify you. And the reason was because there were several different exclusions that were at play under that general liability policy. One of them was a professional liability exclusion. And what
1: does that do the professional liability? Yeah.
0: So the purpose of a professional liability exclusion is to say a general liability policy is not intended to cover your professional decisions. So if for example as a lawyer, I have a professional liability policy that if I mess up as a lawyer, I forget a deadline or I do something oops, yep. <laughs> right? That I mess up as a lawyer. That's my professional liability and my professional liability policy covers it. As an engineer, you make a wrong calculation. Oops.
1: And oops happens.
0: Oops, oops happens. Um, but that's what a professional liability policy for. Your general liability policy is not covering your professional acts. It's okay. just a general policy that says, like, somebody comes and trips on your property or something like that. That's what they provide coverage for. And for smaller companies, they don't understand this oftentimes. And if they're not going to their insurance broker and specifically saying, I need to make sure I'm covered for my professional liability, then there's going to be holes. And in that case, the consultant said, well, we're not in, we're not doing engineering work. We're counting pipe, right? A toddler could do that, right? She might skip 16 or 17 when she's counting, but she could do it. And the court said, no, no, no they were hiring you as a drilling consultant, and that was your professional responsibility, even though there wasn't actual engineering going on. So that's something that's really important.
1: It's kind of that oil field engineering of, though we carry the title of engineer, a majority of our engineers in this industry really aren't doing the number crunching equations, differential equations type of stuff that you might classically think about in the school or academia space. Right. But on the day-to-day basis, it is still considered to be engineering, and you need to make sure that you're covered for that.
0: Yeah. Even if you're not an engineer, you've got a guy that's a mud logger that never went to school maybe, but he's still doing professional services and would still need a professional liability policy.
1: No, and that's good. And that's a good thing to make sure that everyone out there notes, especially for a lot of the startups that are coming out here in the service space, to make sure that you're covered both for all of the risks that might come out from that.
0: Right. So... That's the general liability and professional liability. Let's talk about well control.
1: I happen to know a little bit about well control from a drilling perspective. So go ahead.
0: So a well control policy is a very specific policy and it's exactly what it sounds. It's for when a well, you have a well blowout, when a well is out of control. Okay. And there's four primary types of coverage under a well control policy. There's coverage A, which is the cost of actually bringing that well back under control. And and let's step back for a second. Before you get any of these coverages, you actually have to have a well out of control. And each policy is going to be a little bit differently worded on what it means to actually be what's considered, quote, a well out of control for purposes of satisfying the definition within that policy. And let's step back even further. We talked about homeowners or auto policies. Those are... heavily regulated by the insurance commissioner in each state. When we start talking about these energy policies, they're not regulated in the same way. And the reason is, is because the insurance commissioner assumes basically or the law assumes that you've got relatively sophisticated entities that are contracting and working and they don't need the same type of protection as your average homeowner or or car driver does that you know companies are capable of hiring people to go and make sure that they're obtaining the types of coverage that they want so it doesn't have the same regulation so unlike a homeowner's ho 3 form one ho 3 form sorry for all my you know, all state state farm guys out there, but an HO3 form is going to be an HO3 form, regardless of which insurance company you buy it for. There's going to be some changes and endorsements and additional coverage, but all of those have to be vetted by the insurance commissioner in the state where you're living. And they all have to meet certain requirements. That's not necessarily the case. We call them surplus lines insurers. And that means that they're not necessarily regulated by the insurance commissioner.
1: Because apparently we know better than some of the government agencies or regulatory bodies when it comes to this type of well control, or how does that well, variation change?
0: Because the average person doesn't need a well control policy. And so the insurance commissioner and the the legal authorities assume that if you're smart enough to be drilling oil and gas wells, you're probably smart enough to hire someone that understands this, <clears throat> me. <laughs> <laughs> Shameless plugs, I like right? that. Right, right, to um, understand... <laughs> what you need and what you're getting. So, well control policies. You've got coverage A, which is the cost to bring the well out of control. So, what do you need to do? Are you going to need to come in and drill an intercept well to get down to the bottom? Are you just going to need to pump mud? How are we actually going to bring this well? Can you bring a snubbing unit in and actually get it under control that way? That kind of thing. That's the cost to bring the well out of control. So, let's assume that the well control policy says something like a well is – Defined as a well out of control for purposes of coverage, if there is an unintended flow above or below the surface that cannot be stopped with traditional BOP type mechanisms, is a standard policy. So, what's not a well out of control? A kick, right? If you can
1: circulate out that Thank kick, you. and I couldn't and see think of that words, you're monitoring the pits and the and the flow regime properly,
0: right? right. Or a thief zone. You get a thief zone, that's not considered a well out of control. But now what we have seen, and especially out here in the Permian where we've got these long laterals now, is if you've got uh, different producing sands within the same named reservoir, but they are separated by shale or hard rock where they shouldn't be communicating, right. you can have a underground blowout. But a lot of policies have not been updated to understand. So it may say... It may say unintended flow from a named formation. Well, if you've got two different Delaware depth.
1: Wolf camp A, for example.
0: I think that it should satisfy the definition, but that is something to think about. So well out of control is the first one, bringing it back. Coverage B is the cost to redrill or recomplete that well to the same status it was at when it became out of control. So if you've got, for example, you're in the middle of drilling a well and you get to 3,500 feet when it loses, when it becomes out of control, then you would get the cost to re-drill that next well to that same depth.
1: Only the 35,000 feet.
0: Yeah. 3,500, wherever, yeah. wherever you were. Yeah. So if your target depth is 10,000 feet, you're only going to get the cost to get back down to that 3,500. Okay. Because that's where you were at. You shouldn't get coverage, right? The whole purpose is you shouldn't make money you weren't yep. paid yep. right makes sense if you've got a producing well and say you were already producing and then you lose the well and then you're not able to get back in it to recomplete it it will pay for you to redrill that new well up to your policy limits and your policy limits are traditionally a multiplier of the typical AFE cost of a new drill and so that's important so if you've got a typical an offshore for example an offshore well control limits maybe 50 million 100 million 500 million yep. whereas an onshore maybe 5 or 10 or 25 million it's usually a multiplier of 5 to 10 of the cost to redrill the typical well
1: do those take into account sometimes the engineering costs that go into designing and all that as well or is it just the the materials and things that are required on the drilling and completion side
0: you know i think that it it should account for the engineering but I think that the usual thought is, well, if we're just re-drilling that particular well, you shouldn't have to redo much of the engineering. Although, if you have a blowout, you may be saying, hmm, maybe we didn't do the right engineering. And in that case, I think that, yes, it should cover the cost, to at least to get back to where you okay. are. That makes sense. <clears throat> okay, so then coverage C is going to be your care, custody, and control, which is your the drill bits, the pipe, whatever, the, the rig. The equipment that was within the care, custody, and control of the policyholder of the well control policy. And then finally, you're going to have a pollution element. One thing that you want to look for in your well control policies is whether or not there is a choice of allocating the costs. Sometimes the insurance company says, we're going to go A first, and we're going to exhaust that amount, and then you can go to B, and then you can go to C, and then you can go to D. Or it may say that the policyholder has the right to choose which costs it wants to pay for first. So if it's got a really large care custody and control exposure and there was a really fancy tool or something out there, that 2 or $3 million kind of thing, yep. that they they can choose to, maybe they don't want to drill that well again,
1: right? Which makes sense, it Makes right?
0: sense, but it's, it's often something that you have to ask for. It's not necessarily automatic. So just, I've seen that and somebody out there that's listening may not have ever had that issue. So something to think about.
1: No, it's good to make sure that you're covered on the risk side for things that you're not expecting to see, especially when it comes to these drilling of wells and the variations that happen in the subsurface environment.
0: Right. And then another thing that I wanted to touch on for the well control stuff is what we call the due diligence clause. And there is not much case law out there interpreting that. And what
1: do you mean by some of this case law that there is stuff missing or not many things that have been done in the past? What does that mean?
0: So there's lots of car wrecks. So there is lots of case law interpreting what a specific provision in an auto liability policy actually means. Okay. There's not as much case law on what these specific provisions mean within a well control policy. So for example, what is a plugged and abandoned well? If there's no definition within the policy itself, is a plugged and abandoned well one that was actually plugged in accordance with the regulations in force at the time when the well was abandoned? Or is it any well that's been designated as plugged and abandoned? Does it actually have to be plugged? You know, if the policy doesn't have a definition, I have litigated that issue, and it didn't have a definition of what a plugged and abandoned well is. And we said, well, if it's designated as plugged and abandoned and everyone thinks that it's plugged and abandoned, then it's a plugged and abandoned well, unless it doesn't have any plugs in it. And then there's no intention of plugging it. In my mind, that's an abandoned well. Yep. It's not plugged, right?
1: It missed the P instead of yeah, just the A. It,
0: or it's a temporarily abandoned well. And is there any temporal element to being a temporarily abandoned well? Maybe the operator at the time intended to just temporarily abandon it, and then they never came back on You know, to put a Christmas tree back on it. They just left it.
1: And that's been a big, I think challenge that we're having right now in the industry in general is as these wells are aging and we're going through the life cycle of some of these wells is how are we handling going from the primary recovery into the secondary or tertiary recovery in a conventional space but also what are we going to do and how do we define that pna activity or plug and abandon well programs for unconventionals when we don't know what that future is going to hold for that well in the next 70 or 80 years? How right. do you define what is a PNA and a on a shale well?
0: Right. And I don't know this. Maybe you know this and maybe you don't. When you P&A a horizontal well, are you actually putting a plug at total depth or are you putting it where it kicks off for the lateral run? Do you know? I don't know.
1: I don't know either, in all honesty, and I think it might depend on what their strategy is going forward with that well right. as well.
0: Whether or not they want, they think there's there's a future utility, because you sure as heck don't want to start putting plugs in the middle of a lateral run if you're going to come back, I would assume, yeah. as long as you're making sure that you don't have flow outside of that reservoir.
1: And I think that'll be really interesting to see, too, when it comes to the strategy for enhanced oil recovery of unconventionals, is how are we manipulating or how are we constraining these wells as it stands right now on Sarah's question is it just vertical are you able to contain it just from a vertical sealant can you put a packer
0: in there and yeah I don't know
1: and that's something I I'm not in that space so I'd have to look into that more but it's really an interesting point especially when you start looking at horizontal well drilling in general not just on conventionals but if you get into Canada or into Alaska or some of the other extended reach laterals that you're starting to see around the world how are we handling that? And are we really setting ourselves up to mitigate the risk of it, but also to make sure that we're lowering the cost to go in and do reentry work or recompletion right. work in the future? Right.
0: In five or 10 years when the technology has evolved and we can go back in and yeah, that's, that's interesting. And to make sure that your contracts and your insurance are up to date with the technology because it never is. They're, they're always lagging.
1: And that's something we were talking about, too, on the, on the cement evaluation side of it, is how do you define what is a, a good cement job on some of these wells that were plugged and abandoned in the 1950s? How is that grade of cement, and how does that logging tool work when it comes into saying or verifying that you have a proper top of cement at X depth? Right. If you were to go log that with current technology, would you find that same depth? Hopefully, yes, because in theory, it's the same well with the same information.
0: Right, but if they were just pumping the cement from surface and they weren't actually placing the plugs, and then they didn't go back in and tag it, how do you know that where the cement ended up?
1: Yeah, I think that'll be a really interesting thing that we'll start seeing here more. Uh, to to get back to Sarah's point on the on the case law aspect of it, you might be reading more of that aspect in the coming right. years.
0: Yeah, and I can tell you that most well control policies now. Have a plugged and abandoned well exclusion. Okay. And so traditionally, people didn't think that PNA wells were a big exposure. Just like people didn't think producing wells were a, a really big exposure. Most of the times when you have blowouts, it's while you're drilling or you're actually working on a well. But we, with secondary and tertiary recovery, with new technology, with fracking, and, and nobody wants to talk about frac hits, but it's happening. And I think that we're going to start seeing more issues, integrity issues well control issues with producing wells, temporarily abandoned wells, P and A wells, not just wells while they're being drilled.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree fully on that. It's really an interesting topic at any of the conferences that I've been attending in the past is the the parent child relationships or those frat kit communications from Well Board A to Well War B or from well one to well seven and it skipped two three four five and six how did that frack hit or that pressure communication happen there and it's really an interesting thing to see that i'm curious to see on how that's handled from a from a legal or or risk mitigation standpoint
0: right and i can tell you that right now it's not it's the industry has done a, a pretty good job of policing itself and and kind of agreeing Right to take its own responsibility, and so if you've got a guy a mile down the road that's drilling or fracking at the same time you are, you just kind of ignore it and handle your own stuff, is how it's happened right now. But that's because we haven't had a really catastrophic event, I guarantee you. Again, you start getting into seven, eight figures, and it becomes more of an issue, or oil drops again
1: to nothing and then you have to figure out how you're going to handle that yeah and i think you're starting to see that too on some of the water flood with the new technology that's coming out on on various gel blockers that you might pump right on your fence line or right on where you're having one lease that you own and your neighboring operator actually you block up all of his wells with his gel how did how do you handle the fact that he lost all that production well i i operate on my land i I don't know, can I control the the subsurface environment? And are you covered from that? Or is it more of a, that's on a fence line, it's a subsurface environment and good luck?
0: Well, I think big picture, you don't have a contract, right? Correct. It's a separate operator. So there's no contract. So it's going to be at law. And you're responsible for your actions. And you only have the right to your your depth within okay. your boundaries. But at the same time, You know, the the Texas Supreme Court last year said that, for example, if you're directionally drilling and when you drill through someone else's reservoir, that that's not an underground trespass. You don't have to reimburse them for that 8-inch diameter right through their producing zone. But an 8-inch drill through a producing zone on your way to another spot where you're directionally drilling is significantly different than clogging up someone's production with your gel, right? So no, I think it's definitely going to be an issue. And there's no insurance for that that I know of. That's, That's
1: why business? I just thought I would ask you. Yeah. Sorry, point blank on a on a podcast. But I think that that was kind of an interesting point that someone brought up to me the other day in one of my discussions that I was having. And I, I was fascinated by that kind of discussion. And since we typically in this industry are more of a handshake, let's make sure that we do the right thing the right time. But I didn't know if there was any coverage for that type of association.
0: Not that I can think of right now, unless it would be under your professional liability. In There may be some coverage there for saying you cause damage, but then you're going to have issues because it's not a customer. Correct. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely some interesting coverage issues. And I think I want to research that and think about it a little bit more. And then I think we could do another episode on these frack hit underground decisions kind of the implications behind that on your contracts, insurance, and just generally liability. I think that's definitely yeah, definitely no, It's a
1: big, hot topic for any of our operators out in the Delaware Basin, especially in New Mexico, when your well paths are often crossing or you have to do joint ventures or you have to do these types of agreements with other operators just to make sure that you can hit your lateral length that you're wanting to hit. That gets the optimal production out wow. of the ground.
0: Yeah, no. We're going to come back to that. Thanks, Alex. Yeah. Okay, so... We've got a couple more minutes for today's episode. So we've talked about general liability policies. We've talked about well control policies and professional liability. Let's talk about just big picture, some of the other types of coverage. And then we'll come back because I think the other ones are going to need some more time. So pollution is a big issue that I'm going to do an entire episode on pollution insurance because it's a huge issue in our industry right now that if people haven't been privy to it, there are policies out there that are still being written that have major issues. Absolutely. Okay, so we'll talk about that another time. Cyber is another one that we're going to talk about. So everyone sees, you know, the target breaches and the Home Depots, and they, they say, well, we don't have credit cards. People aren't paying for stuff on credit cards on our website. We don't have a cyber exposure. But if you go and Google it, I, I dare you all, please go and Google, energy industry cyber attacks. Our industry is actually the second most targeted in the entire world. And we have not necessarily so much of a financial risk. We have a people, property, environment risk. And so with the invention of the Internet of Things and the interconnectivity of sharing of information and emails and just the electronic nature of the world that we live in today, and there is a very real risk of someone using, for example, a service company's server to go in and hack remote valves and open up flow lines or open up pipelines that shouldn't be opened, or if you've got a processing facility that's being shut down to be worked on, remotely accessing wells and valves and processes and essentially creating bombs or other really catastrophic losses. And I can tell you that those most of those risks are excluded under your general liability policy and your pollution policies. And so the cyber is a really quickly evolving area. And we're going to have another episode that strictly talks about cyber policy.
1: Oh, that's great, because I could go into so many details of where the possible things are changing from that aspect of it from a service company's perspective. And it's amazing to see the differences of that and where the trends are kind of going right now for more of that remote operations and connectivity.
0: Directors and officers and errors and omissions for governance. So company decisions, right? Say there's a decision to not implement a certain technology or to not do something, and then something bad happens. The protection to make sure that your board of directors and your CEO and the people at the top of the company that are making these really big decisions, that there's coverage for them in the event that things go bad. You've also got, you know, for publicly held companies and Decisions for if there's a stockholder that sues or something like that because of the stock prices. Those are totally separate issues, but there is standalone insurance for that. You've also got employment practices where if someone says you discriminated on the basis of sex or religion or another protected class, or I'm not getting paid the same because I'm a woman, or I was sexually harassed. You know, I mean, in 2018, those are major issues that are potential liabilities for any type of entity, not just the energy sector but something that people need to think about.
1: All industries in general right now are it's a big topic for right. sure.
0: It is. Property. We were talking at the beginning of this episode about the difference between first party and third party and a first party property policy is intended to cover your property. So if you've got a facility for example, your building, you know, your equipment, all of that's going to be your first-party property, and that's scheduled. So, in other words, you submit to the insurance company a list of all the things you want to insure. Here's all of our compressors, or here's all of our cranes, right? And here's the value of those. And it's more like a, an auto policy or a homeowner's policy in that I'm, I'm insuring the specific costs to replace my property in the event that something happens. And then you've also got, for example, if you're using aircraft or drones or helicopters, right? So aviation policies, those are standalone. If you're using any type of boats, if you're maritime offshore, you've got hull and machinery and, and I, which stands for protection and indemnity. So those are all more specific. And again, we could spend an entire episode on the issues in those, but just big picture.
1: No, it's good to, I think, cover the big picture aspect of it, just so that some of these terminologies that are getting thrown around in some of the board meetings that you all might be involved in, or just in general, when you read it on your, on your various forms that you have to submit to customers, if you're a salesman or business development manager. So I think understanding some of these terminologies I think are important to understand why why we have all those pages of things that you should be reading but probably don't.
0: Right. And then the last is your umbrella and your excess policies. And I'll just spend a couple minutes. An umbrella policy is bigger. Think, think about an umbrella, right? In that there are underlying policies that have to be exhausted. But if for some reason, say, your general liability policy doesn't cover something, Then an umbrella policy will have some broader wording that will what we call drop down to provide coverage above the self-insured retention. So for example, if you've got a million dollar general liability policy and then a five million dollar umbrella that sits on top of that and something's excluded, it may have a $100,000 self-insured retention, where you, as the policyholder, are responsible for paying that first 100000 and then the insurance will pick up on top of that.
1: Is that fairly similar to uh, personnel or household uh, umbrella policy, or is it much different in the oil and gas industry? No.
0: I mean, I think the big picture it's the same. So the umbrella sits on top, and then an excess is what we call... It's usually what we call a follow-form excess, and it just simply provides additional limits on top of the underlying. And whether or not their underlying policies are exhausted, we could spend a whole 30 minutes talking about the issues on whether or not, for example, if there's an issue of coverage and you settle with your first-layer insurance company, making sure that you, quote, exhaust that policy. So if there's a hundred million dollar loss and there's an issue and you say, okay, well we'll cover two million of it if you cover three million and then we exhaust that five million to get into the next, there's lots of issues there where you may not actually be doing that. So again
1: It's always complicated, right? That's (laughs) why you have to have your good lawyer and legal team. That's what keeps
0: me in business, (laughs) right? Can't make it too simple. But yeah, so thanks for joining me again, Alex. And Make sure, again, you guys, to go to thoughttrace.com slash podcast drawing to sign up for our portable power bank. Sounds good. Thanks, sir. Thanks. If you guys could do me a favor and like, leave a review for this podcast, that's the best way for us to get exposure and let other people discover how much fun we can have reviewing insurance and risk management issues.